You are listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. To the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 549 for March 17th, 2021. On today's show, Lila Bialy. As I'm recording this intro, I'm in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York visiting my sister. By the time you hear it, unless you're a member, I should be in western Massachusetts which is where I'm originally from and uh, just hanging out for a couple days. I am... Uh, I think I was going to say giving some serious thought, but I think I've really decided I'm just kind of working on the plan. I've decided to take my van and myself to Berkshire County in Massachusetts and try to make that my home base. I had originally been planning to make my home base down in Florida because it's a fairly easy state to become a resident of, but I really disliked Florida when I visited it, and so uh, then I was going to just leave things in Arizona, which is where my healthcare is currently based and the only state in which it works, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense to keep things out there because most of my family and uh, the people I want to see regularly are on the East Coast, and I've always wanted to live back home in Massachusetts. The last time I lived there, Jimmy Carter was president, so it's been a while, and I keep finding ways to not do it, and now there's really very little, if any, barrier to doing it. So I'm going to go to Berkshire County, I think, and uh, try to try to make a go of it in the van there, and we'll just see what happens. So if you want to support all of this stuff, this whole making a show in a van thing, uh, the best way to do that is to become a member of the Jazz Session. You can become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, thejazzsession.com slash join. I'll tell you more about what you get for becoming a member later in the show. One other thing you can do to really help me with this entire project is to share it with the people that you know who might like it, whether that just means sharing it on your social media or telling someone about the show or sending an email to someone with a link to an episode you liked. Whatever it might be, that is the best way I have to get the word out. I feel a lot of the time like and I'm sure we all feel this way, like you're kind of talking to the same people over and over, and it can be hard to expand that circle of folks who know about what I'm doing. And you are the best way for me to do that. So if you would just take a moment, that would really, really help me out. Thanks so much. Lila Bialy's most recent album is called Out of Dust. Come on down when you hear that sound. Come on down, there's a fire underground. Come on down when you hear that sound. Come on down, there's a fire blowing around. 16th year of the 21st century. It was a year that shifted. 
Welcome to the jazz session. Oh, thanks for having me, Jason. It is my pleasure, and I am interviewing you uh, just days after the album we're going to talk about, Out of Dust, received uh, a Juno nomination. So, congratulations. Thank you. That was uh, quite unexpected. It always is, right? I mean, I've learned not to um, anticipate nominations and also not to be driven by them, but it's it's a happy thing when they when they come. You said right at the end of that sentence as if I too might have been nominated for a Juno at some point. But no, I don't I don't know what that feel, <laughs> feels like. Oddly enough, podcasts don't get Juno nominations, so uh, I have no idea what that might feel like. So tell me what what does it feel like? How, how do you find out first of all? Oh, okay. So it's it's interesting and in, here in Canada, um there is a press conference where the nominees are announced for a given year. And um I learned back in twenty in two thousand eleven when I got my first Juno nomination for an album called Tracing Light, that when you're invited to said press conference, it usually means you've been nominated. <laughs> um, and you know, my publicist at the time was like, "So you've been invited?" Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, but I've since also learned that, you know. In fact, that's not always the case. And now that I'm not only an artist, but also, you know, a, I mean, I, I hate to call myself an influencer. That feels like a loaded word, but I'm a, a, a national radio host here in Canada. So I could be invited to the Juno's press conference because I'm, you know, kind of on the industry side of things. And so when I was invited this year, I really, <laughs> really kept those expectations in check because, um, you know, of course, one does hope that they're nominated. And there is, you know, a real feeling of excitement and gratitude when the nomination does come, which I experienced this year as I have in years uh, past. It This seems like in many ways kind of a, a fitting, almost storybook ending to the saga of this album, which, you know, <laughs> came out during a pandemic started, as I understand it, and of course, I'll be hoping that you'll tell us about this, but started, as I understand it, out of, you know, some difficult places that you were in in your life. And despite really everything arrayed against making art in those conditions, and at this time, you did anyway, and it turned into a successful record. And then, you know, days ago, the uh, industry standard of whether it is considered successful by you know one's peers says yes we do think it's it was a success and that just seems like it's like a saga in and of itself just the making of this record at least at least from my vantage point yeah it absolutely was and you know in some ways there was this huge um i don't know if dichotomy is the right word or disconnect you know, when I was making Out of Dust, um, creating the songs for it, it was uh, back in 2019. And funnily enough, um, you know, most people would have said that was a banner year for me. That was when my last record, um, which was self-titled, 
Lila Bialy won a Juno. So it, I won the Juno in 2019, but simultaneously I was working on the uh, music for Out of Dust. And it was a brutal year behind the scenes, you know, in terms of my health and uh, just some some personal losses and and um, and it was kind of out of the ashes of <laughs> all that stuff that was happening behind the scenes that out of dust began to take shape. And and then fast forward to, to 2020, when I released the album, I mean, you finally have everything queued up and and um, most people probably have some sense of what that looks like for musicians these days, right? You're organizing tour da- dates, whether that's for weeks or months. And in my case, it was for months. And it was a global tour that was taking me to Europe and across the US and, you know, parts of Canada. And you painstakingly go about setting all these things up. I mean, sometimes that work um, can take the better part of a year to set up. And, um, And then it all got leveled in one fell swoop days before the album release by this unforeseen global pandemic. <laughs> and so it was like I was reliving the out of dust experience all over again <laughs> at the outset <laughs> of the release, which in some ways was kind of poignant and and in a way also gave the record kind of new meaning, you know, or renewed meaning. Down the avenue with the daybreak light, thoughts awake the early muse, and her canvas is white. Drains her morning gown from the Empire Cafe. Dad is rising up. She goes on. Did you think at any point as the pandemic was becoming a a reality that you were going to have to deal with, did you think at any point, well, maybe I should wait to release this record until I can go on this tour? Or at that point, were the wheels just too much in motion? So for me and for my husband and co-producer, the wheels were too much in motion. But for my team... They were like, don't do it. Wait till the fall, you know. And I just felt like that, you know, there was an inertia to what was happening already. And I understand that in a way, arguably, pandemic broke that inertia. But but for me, you know, I just, I could not wrap my head around postponing things. And I also had the sense, Jason, that, you know, there would be a dearth of releases because of the pandemic. And that, I mean, you know, probably a lot of artists were going to be postponing. And so, you know, conversely, the market would get flooded by releases in the fall. And so I just thought, you know what, in what might end up being a bit of a void, I'm just going to move forward because people are going to need music. They're going to need encouragement. They're going to need a little bit of light in the dark, you know, to, to put it in a slightly cliche way. And that's what this album is about. So hopefully it will speak to people. 
But the thing that was really difficult was that, you know, of course, artists are able to communicate directly with their listeners and the rest of the world by way of the internet. And a lot of the gatekeepers have been removed. But at the same time, tastemakers and the media, you know, you do still count on them and lean on them to reach a wider audience and to help you tell the story. And all those people disappeared. I mean, the news shifted completely to to, to uh, covering COVID, right? That was the new big story and it was ongoing. I mean, it dominated every headline for weeks on end, right? And, and then, um, you know, a lot of the radio stations that would have given airplay to Out of Dust shuttered their doors, most of them temporarily, but some of them permanently. And so I lost... I mean, I really did lose a lot of momentum. So I can understand why my team suggested waiting because there might have been some wisdom in that, um, you know, from a, a business perspective. But uh, no regrets. I still I still think that it was the right thing. And you're right that, you know, fast forwarding to the year end 2020, when the album ended up on a few best of lists. And then, of course, most recently, the Juno nomination. That was really affirming because looking back, I, I did kind of wonder, well, how did that actually go? You know, I, I didn't have a clear perspective of, of how the album had actually performed. <laughs> going back a little bit to the the creation of the music on the album which you talked about was happening mostly in 2019 and and during a very challenged personal year for you i'm always curious about the decision that goes into you know how much of what's happening in my life am i going to reveal through the process of my songwriting uh you know so in other words is it are the emotions just going to carry over or you know are there going to be explicit you know, conversations in the lyrics about things that are happening. Am I even going to reveal the emotions uh, or just, you know, put on a brave face and, you know, an album full of happy music? Um, can you talk about how you made those decisions and how you how you approached writing during that difficult time? Yeah, I think I go with a, a, an intuitive sense of whether or not I've crossed the line for myself and I can go pretty far and actually even, um, you know, uh, if I might be so honest, made my European label a little uncomfortable with how autobiographical it was. And it was quite candid. And, and more than that, not just the songs themselves, but um, the stories I was willing to share behind the songs in interviews. And at one point, um, 
one of my uh, European publicists kind of, you know, uh, you know, he, he, he had the best of intentions. And um, from his perspective, he felt that, you know, it was important not to destroy the mystery that surrounds artists that he felt is important for the public, at least over there. But that's where you decide and determine what kind of artist you want to be. And I always loved musicians like Sarah McLaughlin, who were very candid, um, and not only in their songwriting, but also, yeah, in interviews. And that's not for everybody, but for me, that was the authentic way. And so I just decided to to continue. But, I, you know, I did perhaps reevaluate just how far I wanted to take those stories. And, you know, how much do people really want to hear? You know, do you want to tell them and show them everything? Probably not, right? So I, I think I, I walked it back a little bit. Um, but then, Jason, there's also, for me, a line that you have to observe that has to do with other people's stories. And... There are three songs on Out of Dust that tell the story of dear family members and and, uh, and a friend. And so I had to think about, okay, I need to respect the memory of that individual. I have to consider how much, you know, how they would want this story to be told. You know, so for example, with Glass House, um, that's about the suicide of my cousin-in-law, Kitty and uh, the song was largely inspired by my husband's poem, a poem he had written that he hadn't shared with me for years, processing her death. And so when we decided to write it, um, you know, I allowed him to kind of set that boundary. How far do we go? How much of the story do we tell? How do we tell the story? And then once it was written, we um, brought it to Kitty's sister, Gwyneth, she's Kitty's only surviving sister. And we, we made sure that she was comfortable with it. And, uh, cause we felt it would not be fair to release it. Like we didn't want to be part of, you know, furthering her brokenness or, and everything she went through around the death of her sister. And so we made sure we checked in with her on that. And then actually the monolith tells the story of Gwyneth in a way, processing Kitty's death through art and um, this building that went up outside of her studio and what that meant um, in terms of her journey of overcoming the pain and, and all the barriers. That, that building became almost a symbol of that season of recovering from the loss of her sister. And so again, you know, I wrote the song, but then we, we sent it to her before it was made public um, to make sure that she was comfortable and then finally, uh, well, two more, Wendy's song, which was, uh, you know, telling the story, which told the story of my late friend, Wendy, um, who the album is dedicated to. And then The Baker's Daughter, which is about my sister. I have three sisters and my sister, Tanya, she calls herself Nia. Her life hasn't been easy. And um, in many ways, she's felt kind of homeless through much of her adult life. And that's a sensitive story to tell kind of on her behalf, but also, you know, I want to respect my parents and the rest of the family who are a part of that story. So anyway, I've kind of laid it all out there for you, but I hope that answers your question about how I kind of try to navigate difficult territory because I don't want to offend and I don't want to hurt. 
let's step away from the interview for a moment so I can remind you about membership. If you go to thejazzsession.com join, you can become a member for $5 or $10 a month. At the $5 level, you get early access to just about every episode. Plus, each week you get a bonus episode called Track of the Week, in which an artist talks about a track from one of their records, and you hear them talk about it, then you hear the song in question. At the $10 level, you get that, so you get you know, the, the four episodes of the main show a month, you get four track of the weeks a month, and then you also get a monthly kind of grab bag bonus show, which can be all kinds of things. Sometimes it's extra material from interviews, sometimes it's conversations with writers and jazz fans about albums they like. It's it's just kind of whatever I decide it's going to be. So if all of that sounds cool to you, uh, please become a member today. That's the only way this show can keep going. And quite honestly, it's what keeps me you know, in food and gas, which are the two main things that I need to continue my existence. So again, go to thejazzsession.com slash join today and become a member. Thanks. Now, back to the show. Life is done this interview 20 years ago and i think if we were to do it 20 years from now the spectrum of what would be acceptable would be changing all the time because i think so for example my my opinion about everything you just said a kind of setting aside the idea of respecting the other person's right to have their story told which i think is i hope is obvious to people and you know should should go without saying setting that aside the question of how how much do i reveal or how honest should i be i think the parameters of what is not only acceptable but uh but desired in our society are changing especially as we have more honest conversations around mental health because i think for a long time i mean artists the lives artists lived, with the exception of, you know, things like drug use and destroying hotel rooms and, you know, sleeping with groupies or whatever, like that kind of stuff was like rock star okay. And it was like part of the mystique. <laughs> but we would rarely right. talk about, you know, oh, well, this person also has PTSD or suffers from depression or, you know, has attempted suicide or those kinds of things. Nowadays, I feel like, and obviously there are exceptions to everything I'm saying, but nowadays I feel like now that that dialogue is more available in the public sphere, that it has become not only more acceptable, but almost more necessary, like kind of disingenuous if you don't address at least some of the things that are really going on in your life, which is not to say that you can't make an album of happy pop music. I mean, uh, that's awesome. Like, do it. You know, that's totally great. But I think for a certain kind of artist who is known for speaking about their lives to not include those parts of their lives, I think can feel a little hollow as a listener. And my guess is that like 20 years from now, we'll 
this part of this conversation won't even make sense anymore. Like, why were they wondering whether it was okay to do... Because I just feel like that conversation is becoming so much more public and acceptable now that, you know, eventually these concerns are going to seem a little bit antiquated because people, I hope, will just be in a place where talking about how we really are and how we deal with how we really are is what's just, you know, de rigueur and and expected. At least I hope that's the direction we're going in, which is why I think albums like this are important. Yeah, thank you. You know, I mean, it's an excellent, uh, in a way, I I don't know that I would call it a debate, but I, I would say it still is a bit of a debate. And I think that as our social personas, so what people see on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, you know, but especially Facebook and Instagram, those narratives are so, most instances, carefully curated and polished. I just think that it's really important that people also see what the real story is. And and some, some artists and people actually do use uh, social spaces uh, as their platform for telling, you know, and revealing the nitty gritty. Um, but I would say by and large, uh, it's a very carefully curated presentation of our lives, you know, whether we're public figures or not. And that's where I think that, uh, artists, it's almost our duty, you know, to, to, to show the other side from time to time. Right. Um, and, uh, and when you think about the creation of work and, and art, I agree with you. I mean, I, it's so funny during pandemic, there were studies, done. I remember hearing about them from the BBC World Service, you know, about the kinds of music people were listening to. And actually, it it wasn't the more cathartic uh, stuff. It was it was the happy, easy pop songs, right? And uh, the fast, fast, easily digestible music, because I think people needed a break from the hard reality of their lives. So there's really a place for that as well. And I've been thinking about my next record, you know, what am I going to do? And and I can't help but you know, it's, it will absolutely flow out of pandemic times. It, it can't help but do that. That's the reality for all of us, right? So I was like, well, okay, do I do I tell the story of pandemic in my own way in these next songs, the way that I'm sure myriad artists are going to do? Or do I, you know, create something that, again, will be a welcome divergence? And maybe I'll make my first kind of pa- happy, frothy easy record and there's no shame in it. Right. So I've been, I've been thinking about, well, you know, what do I want to do? And then also what will serve my listeners? How, how do I want to serve my listeners? And, um, yeah, it's a fun kind of fun territory to explore, um, with my, my husband and, and co-producer, he always weighs in on that kind of thing, but ultimately I almost can't help the direction the, the album go, goes in, um, as without of dust, that wasn't a planned, project, you know, or concept. It was just where the songs took me when I sat down to write. Well, I'll be equally happy if the next record is a a bleak testament to the pandemic or like 28 two-minute 60s bubblegum pop songs, (laughs) given your treatment. I think either one is totally fine with me. Or maybe a double album in which the one one record is one and one record is the other. So you can choose, you you know, know, light or dark as you like. You know, so you know what got me thinking about slightly like a happier record I was thinking about um you know some of what John Batiste is doing these days and also this tradition of the funeral march in um New Orleans so and also you know I'm thinking about my relationship with jazz and I seem to be 
increasingly diverging from jazz and, and creating these sort of pop jazz um, blended records. And so I was thinking about the, the funeral march in New Orleans, New Orleans and and that, you know, the music would be very somber as they were um, kind of leading the processional to the, the burial ground, the cemetery. And then when they would, you know, about face and walk away, it turned into party music, right? Songs like When the Saints and and I thought, gosh, it would be really fun to make like a New Orleans kind of party record, you know, which I guess that that ground has already been been covered by po postmodern jukebox and the likes, you know. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I'm I'm intrigued. I'm 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 not shutting the idea down. Yeah, no, I I like it. I, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned your uh, you know, kind of divergence from the mainstream jazz world, and it is true. This so this I think is episode five hundred forty nine of this show, and there has definitely never been another album on this show that sounds like that sounds as pop as this record. Um, okay. I, well, I, well, I say definitely. <laughs> I don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. There's quite a chance that there was at some point a record that was like, that was as pop as this that I just can't recall, but I, I'm pretty sure. And so actually, when I first listened to this record, I did stop and think a minute, like not, this show doesn't just feature like, you know, ride cymbal jazz. I mean, it, there's all kinds of stuff on the show and there has been for its entire 14 years. But when it goes away from ride cymbal jazz, it tends to go weird, not not right. in the other direction. <laughs> so when I first heard this record, I had I like I had to split my I really like this record from okay, let me think about the context of this show and whether this fits into what I do and whether when listeners hear the musical excerpts from this interview, they'll think like, I don't know, is this a thing that it should be on a show that has jazz in the name. I, for one, welcome you on my own show. It's ridiculous that I'm saying that, but I think it's awesome that we're hearing more of these kinds of sounds coming from folks like you. Well, thank you. No, I, I actually really appreciate it because um, I have struggled and, and people who have heard various interviews that I've done over the years would know this. I often say this, you know, I have struggled with being in the desert, you know, where it's like I'm too jazz for pop and I'm too pop for jazz. And I feel <laughs> like a misfit. I have no home. And people say, oh, but that's so great. Your music defies category. And there's these wonderful kind of spins you can put on it. But but at the end of the day, I, I actually kind of want to belong. You know, I don't want to be an outlier. Um, So I've had to just embrace what is my music and... You know, my husband, I think a lot of the journey we've taken together um, as co-producers is just, again, I mean, it can sound a little sort of, I don't know, he he would always say, let the songs dictate what the direction the music goes in. Because I would, you know, I'm an arranger. I love to arrange other people's songs. And so, um, you know, when I first started working with Ben, I, it was a record called House of Many Rooms, which is really not jazz. I mean, there's, there's still, you can hear this, there's the spirit of jazz. It's there. I don't think that I could avoid it, nor would I want to, because it's foundational to who I am as a musician. But, um, you know, he was the one who, I kept trying to like box them into, make them sound jazzier. Like I was trying to, 
to add elements and colors and solo sections and so on. And it just wasn't working. And he said, you've just got to let the songs dictate the direction, Lila. And that was how I ended up with this totally divergent record that I I called the project Lila Bialy and the Radiance Project. I had to like split it away from jazz because I just knew, I thought, oh gosh, my listeners will have like, they'll have no idea where this came from. Because it, it was on the heels of a very jazzy release um, with a little bit of pop flavors. Um, with Larnell Lewis on drums and Phil Dwyer on sax and uh, George Kohler on bass. And it was a live recording um, that had a couple of edgier contemporary instrumental jazz songs. And then, you know, the best is yet to come and jazz standards. And uh, I really appreciate that you're willing to embrace me as part of the extended jazz family. And I just have to tell you, because I know that the the Grammys are, are, you know, will will have just happened um, when this airs. Um, it, it, I was quite devastated when um, my publicist, Lydia Liebman, uh, submitted my, or she didn't submit the album, but um, she was part of like the PR campaign for the Grammy for your consideration round. And I'll never forget when she called me up and said, Lila, you've been moved to pop album. And there my name was listed under Justin Bieber's. And I just went, <laughs> are you kidding? Like before I started laughing, I was crying. I know that's a little embarrassing to admit, but I was, Jason. And I I cry. I had a little cry because it felt to me a bit like a rejection. Like, oh man, I'm not even by the Grammy people. I'm too pop for jazz. And I've seen some pretty poppy albums end up in the jazz category, even this year, you know, you know, we kind of got a written explanation from their guidelines that basically said nothing about this is in the spirit of jazz. And I was like, come on, that's not true at all. Right. Like, but, but then what I did was I, I kind of turned the frown upside, frown upside down and just embraced that, you know, from an aesthetic place and especially production value, it is a little more pop leaning. And I could see where the Grammy people might might uh, take that view. And, and that's a good thing. That's actually something I'm proud of and have um, aspired to do with these releases is to, you know, have a lot of the jazz fundamentals there, improvisation and and um, some of the harmonic textures, certainly the instrumentation, bringing someone like Alan Ferber into the mix to handle arrangements um the horn arrangements but then at the same time I wanted it to have to pop like sonically I, I brought it to a mix engineer who is not a jazz mix engineer and I really think he was the one who brought it into a more pop space Let's take a moment to thank the folks who make the jazz session possible, starting with the members who support it, and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, and Dave Rabel for the logo. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. You can follow the jazz session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at the jazz session. It's also on Facebook, facebook.com slash the jazz session. 
Take a second right now to rate and review the Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Why? Because it's easy for podcasts to get buried in the ocean of shows that exists. And as you rate and review a show, that helps it rise out of the ocean to be visible to other people. So that's super useful for me. If you'd like to keep up to date on what I'm doing in the world, podcasts, poetry, van life, all of that stuff, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. If you'd like to more directly follow my van travels, that's on Instagram at vanarchism. V-A-N-A-R-C-H-I-S-M. The word anarchism with a V at the beginning. And now, back to the episode. I wasn't going to bring this up because I feel like we were kind of making this point, but I've changed my mind. I was thinking that actually just on the previous episode of this show was the violinist Sarah Caswell, who toured for uh, several years with Esperanza Spaulding. I mean, has played with Bruce Springsteen. And then, you know, on the other end has played with like Bucky Pizzarelli, Brad Meldow, and then at the other end, which I guess is now three ends, you know, has played in symphonies. And then, you know, I mean, Robert Glasper has been on this show. Uh, Joe Laurie, who toured with Sting for years, you know, was on this show. Members of Peter Gabriel's band, uh, members of tons of hip hop acts uh, who are also well-known jazz people have all have all been on this show. And all of that kind of, you know, goes back to this point we've been making about how in the music itself it all cross-pollinates. It's only outside of the actual music that we feel the need to say what it is specifically. And so I'm kind of curious about your opinion on that as someone who has also worked with, you know, a person we might consider a pop icon at this point, or a, I don't even know what we classify Sting's music as anymore. Um, but I'm just, I'm curious about your experience there and, and kind of your thoughts about it as it relates to the conversation we've been having. Yeah, well, I had a long time dream of working with Sting. And it wasn't because he was this wildly famous songwriter and rock star and and all of that, and former member of the police. It was because, you know, my introduction to the world of Sting was by way of my fellow jazz peers in college. People were listening to his music and loving it because it featured Branford Marsalis and Kenny Kirkland. And by featured, I don't mean a token... 30 second little instrumental moment. I'm talking like lengthy solos where the the crowd would go wild. So, you know, think of the album Bring On the Night. You know, I remember teaching at the Stanford Jazz Workshop where I met Ambrose Akinmuse. Oh, I can never say his last name. Akinmuse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who was actually on my last <laughs> record. Um, and uh, Taylor Eggsty and uh, Peter Stoltzman and Bennett Pastor and um, Tia Fuller, Sasha Dobson. I mean, the list goes on. And we would all be huddled in one of the the dorms because um, we were all teachers together. And we'd be listening to Bring On The Night. And, you know, ta- uh, a Victor Lin would jump over to the piano and start playing along with Kenny Kirkland's solos. And we'd all tried to transcribe that solo. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, this was music that really excited us. And, and again, it was that nexus of pop and 
jazz. And so fast forward to 2009 when Lisa Fisher called me up and asked me to audition to sing with Sting's band. Well, I had the longstanding dream of playing with them because Kenny Kirkland was my hero and, and Joey Calderazzo. Um, but uh, then to be offered the opportunity to sing, you know, that struck me as ludicrous. But I got the gig and I think I got the gig because I was a musician, like not not to. I know it's so cliche and it's a disservice to smart, the many smart singers who are out there to try and separate singers from musicians. It's totally not fair. But, you know, the stereotype exists for a, a reason. We can't deny that. Um, and so um, more and more these days, you're seeing a lot of singers who uh, are also players or have far more advanced knowledge of, of uh, theory and are able to arrange and lead their own bands and that kind of thing. So anyway, I think that's why I was chosen was because I was a singer who was really first a piano player. And um, Bob Saden was producing the album um, I was asked to be a part of for the, the DVD live performance, uh, his uh, If on a Winter's Night project. And Bob, because he's also a jazz musician, right? He produced uh, Herbie Hancock's record and Wayne Shorter's record. I think that he identified that in me. And then I was actually the one to recommend Joe Laurie for the gig, if you can imagine it. Um, and so uh, she came in the next day for the second round of auditions, and she and I were both chosen to join Lisa Fisher and form the 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 you know section of vocalists backing Sting for this project. And uh, it was great because you know we would be rehearsing for ten hours a day, and we would ver be very focused on Sting's music, which had this kind of Northumbrian flavor to it. And then at night we'd be in the hotel bar playing jazz tunes, you know, because so many of the musicians in that band were, were, were jazz musicians. That's amazing. I got to see the Blue Turtles band um, uh, back in the day with Sting when uh, it was Kenny and Branford and Daryl Jones and uh, Omar Hakim. Um, amazing. Got to, yeah, I got to see them on tour. I mean, Bring On The Night is one of my all-time favorite records. And then um, got to see him again when he had an equally incredible band, which was David Sanctious and Dominic Miller and Vinnie Caluda, which was also, I mean, just a band of like ridiculous, you know, players who all could play in <laughs> multiple, you know, genres. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I just... I. I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. And um, I will just say, because I always love to say this, because someone always angrily messages after I do, that Branford's best recorded work is with Sting. And I'll just put that out there. So um, I know he's had a very long career it. and he's a very, yeah, he's an esteemed improvising musician. And I will still <laughs> say and go to my grave saying that he reached the pinnacle of his playing when he had to do everything that he had to do in three minutes at a time, which I think was amazing. So I'm going to jump um, into that pool with you and say that I don't disagree. <laughs> oh, finally. I yeah. have occasionally brought this up on the show and no one has ever been willing to go there with me. I'm so happy to be it's here burning. on Branford Island with you. I thank you it's very much. Burning. I really <laughs> He said himself at that time, like when you watch the, you know, the film that accompanies yeah. that what became yes. Bring on the Night, you know, he says like the, uh, I believe he uh uses a swear word that I won't quote even though that doesn't matter on the show, but he says, you know, essentially we could we could destroy any band that's out there. And he knows that the reason is because all of those people in that band can play so much more than like three chords in a dream. I mean, they all are just these master musicians. And when they're doing it in the service of this like pop rock music, it doesn't nothing. It doesn't dumb down their playing or anything. It just it's like this barely contained. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, uh, I'm glad we're going to go out on this high here, uh, w which is a real uh, 
<laughs> a real nice thing for me to finally have somebody over here on this barricade with me. Um, my guest for this show has been Lila Bialy. Uh, we didn't even talk about uh, and so I'm just going to briefly mention here, and I'll put a link in the show notes uh, just so the show isn't four hours long. But uh, we didn't even mention that there have been a bunch of things that you've released since Out of Dust um, as singles that are fabulous, including um, Joni Mitchell music, which is just another of my all-time loves. Um, so I just encourage people to check those out. I'll put links in the show notes. Uh, but I, I just I'm so happy for you with uh, the Juno nomination. I'm so happy for the music you're creating and how authentic it is to who you are. I'm really glad you came on the show. And I do hope that you'll come back again. Oh, this was such a treat. And thank you. Thank you for having me, Jason. And I look forward to the next time. Thanks to this week's guest, Lila Bialy. If you value what you just heard, become a member for five or ten bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. My heartfelt thanks to Sarah Caswell, who was on last week's episode and also became a member, which is awesome. Did you know that if everybody who'd ever been on this show became a member, it would become financially solvent overnight? It's the truth. So go join and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening, listening everybody. everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.